environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, this is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. Today's guests are Jared Magulis and Gina Stam. Jared Margulis is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Alabama, where his teaching and research focuses on the political ecology of wildlife conservation. Born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, Jared has a BA in anthropology from Goucher College in Baltimore, a master's in biodiversity conservation and management from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in geography, which he earned from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County in 2017. Jared was a recipient of a Fulbright research grant which supported his research on the political ecology of human-wildlife relations in South India. In addition to continuing to research and write about the politics of wildlife conservation, he is currently writing a book about the global illegal trades in cactus and succulent plants based on his postdoctoral research in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Sheffield. Gina Stam is an assistant professor of French at the University of Alabama. Originally from rural Ohio, she holds a BA and MA in French from Miami University and a PhD in French with graduate certificates in comparative literature and psychoanalytic studies from Emory University completed in 2016. Specialising in 20th and 21st century literature, Gina has published several articles on themes such as embodiment, gender and critical plant studies. She is currently working on a book manuscript with the working title Nature Writing, that's nature, comma, writing, how environmental consciousness shaped 20th century French literature. Welcome, Jared and Gina, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. So today we're talking about plants, and like in our episode on thinking with trees, in which I explored the etymological links between beech trees and books, I have for you today another word which weaves together things that grow and the forms of writing. In this case, it's poetry and plants, and that word is anthology. The Greek anthos means flower, so the word anthology literally refers to a gathering of flowers. But how did we come to refer to poetry collections with this word? Its roots go back to a poetry collection made in the first century BCE by a Greek named Meliega. The collection was titled Stephanos, which means garland, and Meliega prefaced the collection by comparing the poets to various flowers. And then, following his example, later collectors adopted the name anthology, or collection of flowers, to refer to their own gatherings of poems. In Meliega's preface, he focuses on the sensual qualities of flowers, writing of the, quote, sweet-scented lovely iris of Gnosis, Erina's sweet crocus maiden-hued, and the dark-leaved branch of Samius. And indeed, perhaps one of the reasons why the connection between poems and flowers made by the word anthology has been so enduring is to do with both of their links with desire. Flowers have been practicing the art of seduction since long before there were humans around to write poems. And while not all poetry is concerned with seduction and desire, there is a long tradition of poetry, from Shakespeare's sonnets to Bob Dylan's songs, that do use beautiful language as a means of or to reflect upon seduction. 
When Gina and Jared proposed this episode, they suggested the title Plants as Objects of Desire. Um, so to start us off, I wonder if both of you can tell us a little bit about your work around plants and how exactly you conceive of them as objects of desire. Uh, so the conversations that are have started to uh, emerge between myself and Gina start with the project that I've been working on for the last several years on um, illegal trades in cactus and succulent plants, which is perhaps something that people are not familiar with. I certainly wasn't until I started researching the topic a couple of years ago. Um, Without getting too into the weeds about why there are illegal trades in these plants, it usually has to do with how endangered species are and whether they're allowed to be illegally, I mean, internationally traded. Um, this work really has come to become, uh, um, I think of it as a multi-species and multi-study, multi-sided ethnography. And in, in particular, I'm really focusing on really passionate uh, collectors of uh, cactus and succulent plants, in particular, the more rare and endangered species. And I became really fascinated with these communities of collecting cultures, especially in the UK, as well as the United States and other sort of Western countries, these long traditions of collecting uh, living plants because uh, these people are, are, are people who are incredibly passionate and caring about their plants and they develop really important skills over time of how to help plants grow and thrive in their personal collections. But at the same time, it is many of these people who are uh, made out as sort of the, the villains in the story of international illegal plant trade. And so in this work, I'm really trying to pay attention to this kind of dialectic of desire in which well-meaning scientists and conservationists are working to protect these plants that they see as imminently threatened in many cases, in part by people who themselves see themselves as caring deeply and passionately about um, these plants as well and see themselves in a very different light in relation to these plants. And I've come to find that desire is a really important um, analytic for thinking about these relations that, that develop over time between persons and plants. So that's sort of how I came to, to thinking about desire and thinking with Gina about it as well. And for my part, we, I think this originated in a conversation that Jared and I had where he evoked the sort of uh, gendered nature of some of these plant collections with um, men tending to focus more on cactus collecting and women on succulent collecting. And that was very intriguing for me. Um, and coming from a psychoanalytic studies background, I started to sort of ask the question, well, what are these plants actually doing for us? Um, and what influence there might be between sort of our psychic structuring and the material qualities or the cultural relations that are associated with these plants, which also is a through line in my own work as well. And I'm curious to know as well, how did you guys meet? How did you start working together? Uh, proximity? Um, we, uh, we started here at Alabama at a similar time and found out that we had a lot in common. But I think also, Gina, it would have to do maybe with the environmental humanities reading group you were running oh, yeah. as well, which I think is a nice, um, space where one thing I'll say about this is that during my postdoctoral research, which is what this, this, this project is based on for me, I sort of repeatedly made jokes about how I started to need to start reading more Freud and Lacan as part of this project 
and eventually came to realize that that wasn't so much of a joke as quite serious. And it was in coming to Alabama um, and really meeting um, Gina and, and others who were actually quite encouraging of that pursuit. Um, and so it's been over the last couple of years that I've been taking that work more seriously and doing a lot more reading um, in psychoanalysis so that, you know, even if it's not ever an area of expertise for me, it's a space that I can, you know, move into conversation with folks like Gina, hmm. which I think is the nice thing about thinking about collaboration and interdisciplinary kind of work. Yeah. I'd actually love to hear a little bit more about that, that kind of psychoanalytic thinking that you're doing. Like how specifically are you, um, using this to, to kind of frame that, that gendered uh, approach to these different plants and, and, and just maybe, uh, explain a little bit more in detail, um, your work related to that. In this article that we're working on currently that may become a larger piece of work, uh, we're really sort of speculating on what kinds of objects have been proposed in psychoanalysis and how those may correspond to people's behavior and discourse around plants. So the sort of most obvious one that I think was prompting a lot of the joking on Jared's part is the sort of fetish object with the um, sort of phallic cactus figure um, <laughs> and uh, and how that might be sort of and according to Freud, this is an object that is perceived adjacent to the first experience of uh, the lack of the mother's phallus. So it's sort of replacing this power that it sees the mother is lacking. Um, but there are also other kinds of objects that have been proposed. And um, so you could have an object of a drive where it's actually fulfilling some kind of the a drive being the uh, psychological representation of a physical urge. So it could be hunger and plants fulfill that. It could be some kind of um, sensual or erotic need and and there, there we have aspects of like touching plants, the texture of plants and going to also where you're talking about the sort of seductive possibilities of flowers. Um, And then also the, um, there's there are certain collections of poisonous plants that um, can be sort of attached to an idea of the death drive. Like, why would you collect um, poisonous plants? Why would you plant them around your house? There are places like the Poisoner's Garden in um, in England and in Italy. There are two of these where you can go visit, and they all and some of the plants are like in cages so that you can't touch them they're so poisonous Hmm. um then you have a a split or partial object which is come which comes from uh melanie klein where you um where an object represents either the good fulfilling side of usually the mother or it represents something that's withholding so the good object and the bad object and plants can be seen as sort of representing either one of those things is it um you know, your wonderful monstera that you take care of and it grows and it's beautiful and gives you joy. Or is it, you know, a cactus? Is it a very um, hard to take care of plant that is going, that you feel like you need to spend all of this time trying to placate in some, in some way in order to get it to grow. And then 
there's the transitional object, which comes from the work of Donald Winnicott, where it's really this kind of connection between you and the outside world, where it's a both a part of you and not a part of you. Um, and it, uh, and this is sort of an area of play of creativity, um, of co-construction of the world. Um, and this is something that I find to be particularly interesting. And it's, and it also is a way to show how plants sort of culturally can be connections between, um, between people. So between you and your family members, between you and your uh, wider culture um, between you and um, and your history, um, and this is actually something that's really sort of come to the fore with COVID, and then also with the uh, sort of racial reckoning that we've been having is that plant collecting has gone through the roof and has gotten a big um, uh, sort of social media and. Uh, traditional media presence. Uh, and also there's been a sort of, um, there, there are a lot of connections between plants and the racial justice movement where, um, a, uh, there's a, I believe he's Brooklyn based. There's a DJ on Instagram whose name I cannot remember, but he started a, a message board for reparations plants where people, um, where basically white people offer to buy people of color or give them plants that they have as a way to um, to sort of restore a connection with um, with nature that is seen as having been um, in a lot of ways damaged by our uh, by our um, history of racism and slavery in this country. Um, and then also there was an article in medium where a number of plant collectors, uh, black women talked about how this was a specific connection to plants, traditional, um, African plants that they felt was a part of their history that they had lost. Um, and so this was really functioning as sort of a bridge between them and, uh, larger culture. I, I, I just, I'm going to actually steal some of Gemma's thunder here a little bit. And, uh, cause as you were talking and, and you, you know, you were, you were speaking about, uh, culture and especially there at the end, um, I started thinking about kind of the connection between culture and cultivate, um, and just that, that idea of, of, you know, the, the kind of shared root of those, those two words, um, and the care that's required for both. So in, in terms of like, um, racial justice and social justice, right. I mean, we're talking about cultivating, um, care for, um, communities and for people. Um, and, and so I just, I, I really like that, that, um, connection that you're bringing up here, uh, and what you were just saying. It speaks to also one of the things I find uh, really generative in thinking with Gina about this is that one of the kinds of things I'm trying to do in my book, which is the tentative title is The Succulent Subject, and I'm quite intentionally focusing on the subject there rather than the object, um, because in doing a lot of the reading around sort of cultures of collecting and interpretations of cultures or, or of, um, of collecting, both from a sort of psychoanalytic, but also social psychology and cultural studies perspective, there's really very, very little written about thinking within cultures of collecting about things that are more than objects. So 
how can we theorize and think about these plants that people truly care for as objects within collections and what collections do in the world and what collections do for people? Um, whether that's thinking about, you know, the role of, um, failing to contend with mourning in a Freudian sense through the, the practice of collecting or, you know, in thinking, um, I love what Gino is saying about the partial object. And I love especially thinking with cacti as partial objects, because on the one hand, they sort of display with their spines, you know, a withholding sense of distance. And at the same time, if you, in so many of my interviews with cactus, especially male cactus collectors, they will talk about how they see themselves in the cactus as something that is sort of ferocious. For instance, the genus of cacti, ferrocactus, because it looks ferocious and a lot of men are like ferrocacti. But at the same time, they'll, if you, if, as they dig deeper into it, they'll also talk about one of the things that they love about many cacti is that they'll have these brief moments in which they produce the most beautiful flowers that oftentimes people don't realize and associate with cacti. And it requires an enormous amount of skill and care to coax a cactus into flowering oftentimes. Some more than others. Some will flower quite easily, but others you really have to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes these collectors would really describe seeing themselves in that and, um, you know, the way that they might be, you know, um, in the cultures of collecting within these plants really cut across class lines as well. So, you know, I've done interviews with railroad workers and miners who describe the sort of tensions they feel in their presentation of their masculinity and how they see that reflected in these cacti that are really tough on the outside. But if you really get to know them, they open up these really beautiful kind of moments. Um, but you have to watch and wait for them. And, 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 and so in paying attention to all those things, I also don't want to lose the sense that these plants are subjects in their own right as well. Um, so trying to, to play across that space between the object and the subject, I think, has been really um, helpful for me. Yeah, I, I found it really interesting when both of you are talking, the the way that, you know, uh, if you're a collector of anything inanimate, it's it's really just a matter of storage, whereas collecting this, it's, you know, as you were saying, a, a matter of, of care. Um, I wonder as well, do, does... Do you think at all about like the temporality of of um, cacti or succulents at all? Because these are like particularly slow growing plants, right? You don't really kind of see them um, really growing quickly the way that you that you can with more more leafy plants. Does that kind of infect how you interpret them at all? Absolutely. The um, more and more of my book is coming to focus on time in a way that I did not anticipate or plan on. Time operates in such important ways for these plants. On the one hand, part of what I find really interesting with the temporalities of cacti and their slow growing nature is I think it enables people to see more of themselves in these plants because a lot of these species do grow on temporalities that are much more akin to human time in terms of their longevity but also how plants serve as the symbolic representations of memory and reproduce memories of those who have passed on. Many cactus collectors uh, will adopt and inherit plants from other collectors who've passed away. And it's seen as a very, very important form of sort of honoring their living memory. Um, But even if they don't have the plant itself, many collectors will be able to tell you, you know, this plant came from a seed that came from this person who originally received this cactus from habitat from the original person who described the species in the first place. 
So there's a real sense that biographies and human biographies are carried through with these species. On the, on the flip side of that, and another way that temporality is really important, increasingly important in my project, focusing more on the legal trade side of this story rather than the sort of psychoanalytic, is how the, the time of plants also shapes what I'm sort of talking about and theorizing as their mutability. How many cacti and succulents have uh, really evolved to be stolen and the ways in which their evolutionary traits enable being taken out of habitat, thrown in a box and shipped around the world for a couple months in a cardboard box and will come out on the other end okay in a way that you wouldn't be able to do with a lot of other species of plants. And that relates to time in part because of their physiological properties. They've uh, evolved to adapt and live um, in ways that time can flow and flux and kind of compress and speed up and slow down. I love the way that Michael Martyr writes about the heterotemporalities of plants and that plants are simultaneously living and dying at the same time in ways that animals um, do not. And so, yeah, I, it's a great question because I think it's really central, actually, to sort of this, this project. Yeah, and just to add a little bit to that, I also like the idea that over time, they can actually shift between different categories of objects and the role that they're playing for the people who are taking care of them or collecting them. And this uh, also sort of connects to the idea of um, just a very flexible relationship between people and plants. We don't, with our work together, we're not trying to sort of pathologize or to pin down exactly what kind of objects plants are, but to sort to open up the conversation about what they can be mm. and um, and the different ways that they function for different people, but also at different moments. Yeah, I think that's really important. I'm glad Gina just said that because I think oftentimes when I've brought up turning to psychoanalysis, especially within sort of more kind of geography spaces, I get these physical looks sort of like, are you sure you want to do that? Because it can feel a bit overdetermined to people. And I think it's because oftentimes people are coming from this quite superficial approach, thinking about Freud and like, you know, the fetish object and things like that. We're trying to really engage, I think, with a multiplicity of forms and individual collectors. I see how these plants operate as particular objects of desire in many different forms. And so there's a lot of different ways of thinking about desire here that are really useful. And I don't think we need to, you know, limit ourselves in doing that. I want to jump back just just a little bit because um, I think one of the things I find maybe not necessarily most fascinating but really fascinating about this is um, is the, you keep talking about the ways that some of these collectors are being being villainized and and seen as as kind of um, in, in a negative light and so I'm, I'm just curious if you could explain a little bit more about um, you know why that is but also you know building off of that maybe. Um, are there are there any kind of valid reasons for you know why there might be negative effects of of these collectors? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for asking. It's an important clarification point, so I don't get too much in too much trouble. Um, <laughs> they're made out as bad, the sort of villains in these stories often because they're breaking the law. Um, so let me be unambiguous about that. There are international trade conventions that say, without getting too into the sort of policy regulatory side of things, that Certain species are listed on something that's called CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade and Endangered, or the International Trade and Endangered Wild Fauna and Flora, or Endangered Species, CITES. The entire cactus family is listed on CITES. It requires any international trade in any 
plant in the cactus family requires an import and export permit, as well as some things called phytosanitary permits from the countries that are being moved. Um, so if you are trading, for instance, cacti online on eBay from one country to another, and you aren't, you don't have those permits, uh, which you have to apply for and pay for by the government, then you are engaging in an illegal international trade. The idea of CITES is to help reduce the risk of extinction and endangerment of species that might be threatened by trade. So that's why these rules exist. And the intention of these rules is to help protect species and habitat to reduce the possibility of people going to Brazil or Chile or Mexico and stealing plants or buying plants and shipping them out internationally if that's going to negatively affect their trade. And so a lot of these collectors think that as well-intentioned or well-meaning as CITES is, this isn't actually effective because Collectors are so passionate about these plants, they will do whatever it takes to obtain them, regardless of whether it's on the right or wrong side of the law. In, in many countries, the, the sort of hoops you have to go through to get these permits is so complicated and also expensive that people just simply don't be bothered. This is not some sort of black market, dark web trade. I can pull up eBay right now and show you dozens and dozens of plants that are being traded every minute illegally online and Instagram or Etsy or eBay. Um, People don't care that much about plants. It's a really difficult regulatory space. Um, you bring up issues of how plants also make it more complicated because of their seeds, but also because they can be cloned, they can be grafted, they can be propagated in multiple ways. There's only one way, there's only so many ways you can internationally ship a live baby tiger, for instance. There are many ways that you can move the genetic material to make plants around the world. And that is a regulatory nightmare for law enforcement agents. And so they're aware that CITES are the regulatory body is not ideal for plants. It was really designed for animals in controlling the trade in international animal species, but it has basically been slapped onto the trade in plants. And it doesn't necessarily work all that well. But that's not to absolve these collectors and what they're doing um, because they are engaging in, you know, what also could be seen, especially because we're talking a lot about, for instance, a lot of European collectors at many times um, in ways that they totally evade questions about the sort of imperial colonial legacies of these trades um, the fact that people see sort of no issue in taking the patrimony and, um, you know, plants from, say, a country like Mexico and then making large profits off of selling those plants and illegally trading them. So there's, a, I mean, there are very important critiques to be made here, but in sort of raising up how they can be positioned in different ways. Um, the, 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 one of the arguments that these collectors will make, and then I'll, and I'll, and then I'll stop rambling, is that because people want these plants so much, it's better for skillful collectors and propagators to go to say a country like Mexico, steal a few plants or a dozen seeds, take them back to Europe, propagate them two years later, have a thousand plants that they can then sell on the marketplace. Therefore, in theory, reducing the risk of collectors going to habitats and taking wild plants themselves. But there are open questions about how effective that really is. It's a very difficult thing to empirically study. Do, do many of them, um, you know, are, are any of these things uh, maybe considered like invasive species where them bringing them over is also risking um, the ecosystems that they're, they're being transported into at all? It's a good question. Uh, there's a couple of instances, Apuntia, you know, paddle cacti that a lot of people will be familiar with have, you know, for instance, taken off as one of, it's the only immediate um, kind of cactus plant or cactus plant that I can think of that's really taken off in many parts of the world as an invasive species. There are other more kinds of succulent type plants that have taken off as more, as more types of kind of 
uh, invasive species without getting too deep into you know, how we're constituting invasiveness. So many of these plants though are being taken out of contexts that are so incredibly different than where they're being grown. So for instance, taking um, hot weather Brazilian cacti and, and moving them to Europe, they're only going to survive if you've got them in a heated greenhouse, for instance. There's no way a plant like that is ever going to sort of escape, so to speak, or suddenly, you know, ravage the, the Hungarian countryside. Um, Gina, can we turn a little bit to, to you now? And I wonder if you can like reflect a little bit about how this kind of relates to your work that's more around um, literature and if you have any kind of examples you want to share with us. So my work deals with the environment a little bit more broadly than with plants, although I have published a few articles on plants themselves and talking about how the environment isn't just a useful metaphor for a lot of writers through the last hundred years or so in France, but it's also a way engaging with the environment is actually part of their um, writing practice in a lot of ways. And they see that being a writer is being open in a kind of porosity that's figured in many uh, different ways by different authors that this kind of, um, openness to the environment is actually part of their identity as a writer and as a creator. Um, and that the writing itself is part of this engagement. Um, and so there's an idea of the environment as being active itself and not just anthropomorphized, but also, as Jared said, um, acting as a sort of, if not a subject, then at least an agent on its own. Hmm. Um, and I do have a passage that is from, so this is from a novel by an author that tends to be seen as a little bit more traditional. His name is Jean Giono. And this book has been published as a King alone in English quite recently, actually, although it was written in the, uh, mid century. Um, but this is, just a description of a tree and the ecosystem around it. So the beach at the sawmill didn't yet have, of course, the girth we can see today, but its youth, at least in relation to now, or rather its adolescence, was of a size and thickness that put it 100 feet above the other trees, even all the other trees put together. Its foliage was stiff of the thickness and density of stone, and its trunk, of which nothing much could be seen, so much was it covered up with boughs, one more opaque than the next, must have been of unusual strength and beauty to hold up so much accumulated weight with so much elegance. It was above all at this point in time studded with birds and flies. It held as many birds and flies as leaves. It constantly, it was constantly worked through and shaken by starlings, crows, and insect hives. At every moment it exploded with flights of nightingales and chickadees. It smoked with finches and bees. It exhaled falcons and horseflies. It juggled with multicolored balls of chaffinches, wrens, robins, plovers, and wasps. Around it was a never-ending ring of birds, butterflies, and gnats, in which the sunlight seemed to decompose into rainbows as if through jets of sea foam. And in fall, with its long red hair, its thousand interlaced arms of green serpents, its hundred thousand hands of golden leaves playing with pom-poms of feathers, bands of birds, and crystal dust, it wasn't really a tree. The forest, seated on the terraces of the mountains, ended by watching it in silence. It smoldered like a brazier. It danced as only supernatural beings can dance multiplying its body around its immobility. It undulated around itself a tangle of scarves, 
so quivering, so golden, so tirelessly full of the intoxication of its own body that you could no longer tell whether it was planted by the anchor of prodigious roots or by the miraculous speed of the spinning top on whose point the gods rest. And so that's one of many examples I could cite of this investing of plants or of weather systems or of geological phenomena with this kind of agency and the creation of a world where there's a very active interaction between writers and the world around them. Uh, And this is really sort of the focus of my book that I'm working on right now, where I sort of follow different literary movements and how they've engaged in different ways with um, the idea of writing along with the environment where they find themselves. One of the things I, I, I loved about that passage is it, it both kind of sets up this idea of the, the, the tree as being an object in space, but also a space itself, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, its own thing that has things growing with it and living in it and on it. And um, I, I really like that, that kind of, of um, double meaning that's, that's happening there. That was really great. Yeah, and it's not just existing for a person in the book. Uh, It's actually an active participant in the world that's being created here. And as you said, it's a a whole ecosystem unto itself. Mm -hmm. It really strikes me in terms of thinking about that passage in relationship to cacti and succulents. One of the things that I find troubling sometimes within thinking about cultures of collecting is that because of the sort of evolutionary physiological traits of a lot of cacti and succulents, they're quite easy to see as individualized objects. There's a reason that they're quite collectible. A lot of these plants are really, really small and singular. Uh, They don't sort of seem to have that kind of spatiality of the tree that Gina was just describing. And yet at the same time, there are these incredibly, of course, like all beings, incredibly ecological beings that have all kinds of relationships with the wider world be they moths or hummingbirds or particular insects um, or herbivores that eat them. Um, And that's something that's often missed, I think, in terms of thinking about these cultures as well, is how easy it is for people to individualize these particular kinds of species because of how they look. It's quite easy to see a cactus as a cactus rather than, for instance, just as an example, a lot of cacti, for instance, will act as mother plants where Um, the seeds of the cactus never really emerge fully from the plant itself. And it's only when the plant itself begins to decay and deteriorate that those seeds will then begin to germinate out of it. And so a plant, as it's sort of ending its own life, will then become a sort of root base for the emergence of a bunch of other kind of new life. And that's really nice to think about in that context. Uh, To zoom out a little bit, can I ask you both to talk a little bit about kind of what what it's actually like working between um the social sciences and humanities like what are the kind of challenges and benefits like have you kind of how have you surprised each other or yeah what, what what's kind of grown out of this collaboration one thing that I really like about working with Jared uh, is that in this collaboration we've really been able to be attentive again as I mentioned before, to the materiality of the plants um, and to their existence as real objects in the world and not just as, um, and not just as linguistic phenomena or metaphors and that we've been able to really make these connections between things that are 
really going on in the world right now and in the, in the theoretical space. Just to echo what Gina said, but then to sort of raise some of the challenges that maybe come with that too, is, you know, we've had to sort of really think about where are we going to publish this? Um, <laughs> and in the strengths and limits that come with thinking in interdisciplinary terms, but then being limited by particular kind of conventions. Um, now, certainly there's increasingly not, like larger numbers of inter, you know, more interdisciplinary journals, um, which have their own sort of pros and cons as well. Um, but I think what's been nice for at least for me in this project, is being able to recognize, hey, this these sort of psychoanalytic dimensions of thinking about these plants as objects of desire is incredibly important. Um, and it's a space that I can write about to a degree as I become more well-versed with this literature, but it's also certainly not a space that I'm going to ever claim as kind of expertise, at least not anytime soon. And, you know, I spent a lot of, my, you know, most of my sort of research data is based on spending time with people who spend time with plants and just doing interviews and participant observation. And I went on a series of what people will self describe as cacto explorations. Um, uh, and, you know, so my work is very grounded in kind of um, ethnography. And so be able to put that into conversation uh, with this kind of sorts of really valuable theory. It's, it's just something that would have been really, really difficult for me to try to do on my own. And to follow up on that, uh, one thing that we've talked about is also the difficulty of acquiring expertise across disciplines and just how much time that actually takes. Um, and that, and so that is one of the difficulties, but at the same time, we're also able to sort of complement each other's lacuna, for lack of a better term, where, um, we can actually, um, by working together, I think to be a little bit more efficient about how we do this kind of work. Yeah. It's really hard to, people don't acknowledge just how much more writing, reading you have to do, right. As a very, especially once you're teaching and things like that, there's just not that much time for things like, you know, doing a whole new literature review. And it's, you know, if you just stay in your disciplinary lane, you don't have to keep really doing that that often. You know, you can basically keep up with the literature by reviewing papers every now and then. But, you know, I've got, you know, five, six books, either by Lacan or on Lacan sitting on my desk. And it's, you know, if I didn't have so folks around me helping suggest where to turn in that work, you know, just was, it just wouldn't be possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, where are you going to publish it? Do you know yet? We've talked uh, about, think... we've talked about cultural geographies, actually, I think, um, but maybe somewhere else as well. There is a, there is a psychoanalytic geographies literature that exists. So um, that might be a place that we're looking, but there, there, there might be other outlets. Awesome. Well, we, we look forward to its inevitable release and, and publication. But uh, unfortunately, I have to, to be that guy and uh, move us on to ending on a roll. We're, we're just about out of time. So uh, I've got a 12-sided die here. I'm going to give it a roll. And whatever question comes up, that's what we're going to ask. Uh, since we have two guests, we're going to do two different roles. Um, but if both of you wouldn't mind responding to, to both questions. So uh, first one is... Uh, ooh, I think this is the first time we've got this one. So, uh, this is question number four. What are you watching or playing right now or recently? So, so something you've been watching, uh, 
you know, TV show, movie, documentary, uh, if you happen to be into games, if, if, you, if you've been playing something, uh, this could certainly, it does not have to be uh, environmental related. This is just a chance for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. So uh, no, no pressure on, on thinking of something scholarly. I've actually been enjoying the uh, restart of the Revolutions podcast, which was on hiatus for a long time, and they're now going through a many-episode arc of the Russian Revolution. I'm playing my first or second-ever um, D&D game tonight online. Awesome. <laughs> so let's, we can think about world-building there. Uh, yeah. I'd never done it before, and I got asked to sub in for some character who was absent with some friends of friends. It's been uh, it's gonna it's a temporary move. I just wanted to really know what A and D was like. I'd never played it before. It's, um, are you are you enjoying it? I I am. I will be honest because it's online. I'm already just. I was in a full virtual conference this whole week on top of everything else happening in life, and I'm really zoomed out. And so sure. the idea of tonight being a uh, on Zoom again from 5 to 11 p.m. is not really that enticing, but I, I enjoy the spontaneity. I really try to dive into the character. Yeah, I actually, I was supposed to run uh, a session this afternoon, but uh, with my allergies, I just, I don't feel... It was when you said that you were rolling a 12-sided die that it popped uh, into my yeah. brain. <laughs> that's, that's why I've got them laying around. <laughs> um, they're kind of like, like Legos in, in my house. They're just... You know, everywhere you got to worry about stepping on them. Um, all right, so we'll go to question number two. Um, and that is uh, number 12. What do you like to do on a day off? Which I know are so very rare for us these days. Um, at least during the pandemic, um, one benefit of being here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama is space. And I'm very, very fortunate at the house that I'm currently renting that I have this really large garden that has really been my total salvation during a very, very isolating year. So I've been spending, when I have the time, a lot of time out in the garden. Awesome. And I like to cook things that are complicated in a way that is slightly <laughs> above my skill level. Nice. How, do you have a, a favorite recipe that recently that you've... Uh, so recently I did some uh, roasted sweet potatoes with uh, lemony tahini from Bon Appetit which is actually very easy, but that was a particularly sounds, good thing. That sounds lovely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both. This was really, really thank fun. You. Good. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Um, how can people find out more about you or your work? Do you have social media websites or anything like that that people can check out? Uh, I don't have social media and my department website is very <laughs> out of date. So I would recommend uh, Google because um Despite strangely sharing my name with a botanic biochemist from Germany, uh, whose work you will also find, uh, I do have s several recent articles that should pop up on Google. And this summer, there's another one on uh, plants and transhumanism, just to give myself a little plug, that will be coming out in French Forum. So Google probably is the best place. For better or worse, I'm, I, I do have those things. Um, I'm on Twitter. It's just my name after it, Mark Lewis. And I have a website, jaredmarkwillis.com, which links to various sub-projects and things like that. Okay, awesome. And we'll have that stuff in the show notes for anybody to get to get easy access to that. Um, all right, well, thanks again. Uh, for those of you out there who would like to submit proposals to us, whether you've got an idea for an episode for yourself or there's somebody you'd like for us to reach out to, um, you can find us on Twitter at Asley 
underscore ecocast. Uh, you can also email us at asley.ecocast at gmail.com. Uh, if you go to our Twitter page, there's also a, uh, a link to a Google form that you can fill out, uh, which is uh, the easiest way for you to submit a proposal to us. And if you've enjoyed listening to the show, please help us to reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Um, thank you so much. And until next time. Bye.